Thanks so much for joining the podcast Thin Places with me, Malcolm Duncan. You're about to listen to a series called um, Confronting the Idols of Our Age, which was originally preached between the 26th of August 2012 and the 14th of August 2012 at Gold Hill Baptist Church in Buckinghamshire, where I was the lead pastor. Two parts of the series, part five that looks at religion and part seven that looks at consumerism, were preached by friends of mine, Vicky and Barry Thompson. I pray that this really blesses you as you think about how you might confront the idols in your life and in our culture. For more information about my ministry, you can check out uh, my webpage, which is malcolmduncan.co.uk, or you can visit my blog at malcolmduncan.org. I'm now the lead pastor at Dundonald Elam, and you can find out more about that at dundonaldelam.church. And if you'd like to pick up more of my teaching while I was at Gold Hill, then simply go to goldhill.org. Thanks for listening. And I pray that it blesses you. Would you turn with me in your Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to just read from verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds... And to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And this is a passage in the scripture in which Jesus comes and begins to talk um, about the Pharisees and about this religious system they've got going on. Let me read this quote to you. Religion is a system of beliefs or a code of moral conduct That judges, qualifies or disqualifies, a person based on their adherence and obedience to certain codes, rules, laws, traditions, or the performance of required act. Um, You see, in every other religion that we look at in the world, you can choose almost any faith and take a look at that religion. And uh, what it will be is this. If you achieve this, this, this and this, then you can have um, a a, a place in heaven with God. Or as long as you meet these laws, or as long as you do this work, or as long as you act in this way, uh, then you can have um, a reconciliation with God in heaven. I'm a bit loud. I think you might need to tell, I'm a very loud speaker, so the microphone might need to be a bit lower. I'm deafening them at the back. Um, but as long as we follow the certain pattern um, and do all the, cross all the I's and dot, dot all the I's and cross all the T's, then you can have um, 
a place perhaps in an afterlife or a place with God and your eternal destiny is sorted. And the Christian faith is so completely and utterly different because you see the Christian faith teaches that we are saved by the grace of God and not by anything that you and I could ever do. Let me read this quote. The difference between Christianity and every other faith in the world is that all other religions are about man trying to reach up to God. Christianity is about God reaching down to man. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, religion was rampant, um, even amongst God's own people, um, the Jewish nation. Um, In the Old Testament, God gave the commandments to the people and um, said, this is how we should live. And what happened was that the Pharisees um, wrote a commentary on that called the Talmud on how we should best follow that. And not only that, but then another commentary was written called the Mishnah. And this was a list of hundreds of rules to meet in order to ensure that we're obeying the word of God. So God gives his word and people kind of go, right, let's write this other manual because then we'll definitely have these rules down. And then they write this manual. And so then they write another manual and say, yeah, but what does that mean? Let's stretch it out further. Let's go to the nth degree and see um, what it means. And, And we come up with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little tiny rules. For example, one of the Ten Commandments in the Torah was this. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the Pharisees made so many rules about how to achieve that. So there was a rule in the end that you couldn't walk on a Sabbath, on a, on a, on a holy day. You couldn't walk um, through the grain field because if your sandal was to snap a piece of grain or a stalk or whatever it was, if you were to snap one, that would be harvesting and that would be work. Therefore, do not. We go from a place where God says, do you know I want you to keep one day a week that's for me and for your family so that we remember what's important here so that you can spend time in in, in communion with me so that you can spend time loving your family and we can remember that this life isn't all about business but it's about relationships. And what mankind does, what the Pharisees did was take that and turn it into this whole massive list of rules to almost where you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. Another rule was this, that if you spat on the ground on the Sabbath, as the spit mingled with the mud, it became mortar. And so you were making mortar to build a house. And so on the Sabbath, you were completely and utterly banned from spitting on the ground. And you were therefore sinning if you did so. And then we find... Jesus, who comes along into the midst of all of this religion and into the midst of all of these rules. And on the Sabbath comes across a man who is blind. And on the Sabbath, Jesus spits onto the ground, takes the mud and wipes it onto the blind man's eyes. And in doing that, 
He's, he's making a political, he's not just healing the man, but he's making a statement to all of those around him to say, actually, you have done this. You have taken something that was meant to be about relationship, relationship with me, relationship with one another, a day and a, a, something that I gave to, to make life better. And you've broken it and you've made it about keeping rules and punishing people. And, and so I'm going to come along and I'm going to show you that actually I'm going to spit on the ground and it's going to be the Sabbath day. And I'm going to heal somebody and I'm going to use that for good because I'm not going to get sucked into all of these rules that you have created. When religion is practiced, our relationship is degraded to a mathematical formula. What the Pharisees in effect did was take something that God gave to be an experience of freedom, an experience of the Sabbath of God and relationships with each other. And they made it into this baby manual or into this good wife or turn it around the other way, good husband manual. That only if you live up to all of this can you possibly be any good. Can you possibly get it right? And I wonder tonight, what are the religious rules that you and I have become Reliant upon. What have we taken, just like the Pharisees did, that have become the basis and foundation and underpinning of our faith? You know, I knew someone a few years ago with, um, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. Terrible, terrible um, disorder to live with. Um, And I think sometimes some of us have ORD. Obsessive religious disorder. A number of years ago, in churches all around this nation, younger Christians were taught that it was wrong to go to the cinema. I don't know if anybody remembers those days, perhaps some of you that are older, where it was sinful (laughs) to go to the cinema. And there's all kinds of things like that from the past that I can rack my brains and think. And, and actually, God perhaps never said that it was sinful and wrong to go to the cinema. But what we did was take God's word and God's freedom and the beauty of God's word and the beauty of this relationship with God. And we started to say, but if you want to live this out, then you must not go to the cinema because if you do, you're sinning. And there are other things like, for example, even reading the Bible for some of us can become an obsessive religious disorder. The fact that, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but that if at times you don't read your Bible as long as other people do, or that you perhaps don't read it for a day, or and I'm not saying reading the Bible is perfect and brilliant, and that's what we should do. But when we come to a place where if we don't read it for a certain amount of time, at five o'clock or four o'clock in the morning, then we feel like we're, not very good Christians, then we feel like God can't possibly love us and that we can't possibly be as good as anybody else. We can even turn the good things that God has given us into religion. And if our world falls apart, if our faith falls apart because we don't get up at that time in the morning or because we miss a day reading our Bible or then our faith is based on reading this 
at a certain time every day rather than on a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Doing good works. If we feel that we can't possibly give up something that we're doing because that will make us not such a good Christian and not so good in God's sight, then we have made that our God. For me, when I was, um, when I was 18, I was um, challenged um, to um, stop drinking alcohol um, purely because I didn't manage it very well when I was a teenager. And so I, I, um, I, I got to a point where I said, okay, God, in order to honor you with my life, um, I'm, I'm not going to drink alcohol and I'm going to sort of stay away from that scene because I'm not being so honoring in my life to you. And the years went by and I continued with that. And one day in, in my um, 20s, I came, good few years on, came to a point where... Um, I thought that if I actually ever touched alcohol, that I would be an awful, terrible sinner in God's eyes. And yet God called me to live in freedom. And that had become almost a religious thing for me. And um, my world felt, just even at the thought of, of drinking alcohol, my world fell apart. It was like, how can I possibly do, I, you know, it's, it's, it'd be so terrible. I would, and I have over, I've, you know, God brought me through that and, and really showed me that that was, it, it was a pro, pro, partly a religious pride thing as well. You know, I'm the sort of Christian that doesn't drink alcohol. Um, but there's all sorts of things like that that can become um, idols for us. The outcomes for those of us living or turning these things into religion are this. That a religious person has a relationship with rules, or a certain rule perhaps, rather than a relationship with God. Religion produces a sense of self-righteousness in the person who follows the rules. Religion produces self-condemnation in those who recognise their own inability to obey. So the day that we miss reading the Bible for, for one day, we just condemn ourselves. Or if we have a smaller Bible, or if we don't come to church twice on a Sunday, then we begin to condemn ourselves and live in self-condemnation because they're the rules that we've set up and that becomes more important than our relationship with God. Legalism prevents people from learning to listen to the Holy Spirit and to recognize when they are disconnected from God and how to reconnect. And it puts them in a state of spiritual blindness. I wonder if we just show this video clip we've got. Is that all right? What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, 
They did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it He called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it, because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. I'm just going to carry on in Matthew 23. So we've had the beginning of Jesus talking to the Pharisees about their rules and taking his freedoms and turning it into religion from verse 23 in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Um, And then that passage goes on, and we could read on there. But um, I was saved um, when I was 13 years old, and um, I've been on this journey with Christ ever since. But for a time in my life, I really sort of came under a theology and really believed that um, in order to be loved by God, that I needed to act a certain way. That in order to be loved by God, I needed to, um, to, to read my Bible more, that I needed to pray more. That in order to be loved by God, I needed to do more in the church and to give more and to tell more people about Jesus. And I, I lived for um, a long, long time under this understanding that, that in order for me, to be loved by God, in order for me to be accepted, in order for me to have a place in eternity with him, that the more I could do, the harder I could fight, the further I could go, then the better that, that, that God would look upon me favorably. And um, sometimes um, it can all be about the outside um, experience and when Christ doesn't demand that. Let me go back to the Old Testament. They've got a few verses here. 1 Samuel 5, 22 to 23 says this, Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Psalm 46 to 8, God doesn't want burnt offerings. He wants our lifelong service. Psalm 51, God isn't interested in penance. He wants a broken and repentant heart. Jeremiah 7, isn't sacrifices God wants. He desires our obedience and promises that he will be our God and we will be his people. Hosea 6, 6, God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants our loving loyalty. He doesn't want offerings. He wants us to acknowledge him. Amos 5, God hates pretense and hypocrisy. He wants to see justice roll on like a river. Micah 6, 6, God is not satisfied with our offerings. He wants us to do what is right, love mercy and walk humbly with, with him. Matthew 9, 13, God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants us to be merciful. And the people in the Old Testament, Testament had come to a place at which they would regularly go to the temple. They would regularly bring their offerings, but in here was empty. You see, in here they had no living relationship with their creator, with God Almighty. And so they would go and they would do the doing and they would do it in the belief and the hope that, that therefore they were loved by God, that they were accepted by God, that all they possibly had to do was the outward things to bring this sacrifice. And yet in here they were empty and without a relationship with God. And some Sometimes we can come to a place where we begin our journeys knowing Christ, having a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And over the years, somehow that turns into a place where we simply say, um, as long as I go to church, as long as I do this, as long as I do that, as long as I do the other, and um, then that's okay. As long as I attend youth group, as long as I attend home group, as long as I give some sort of service for two weeks in the summer, then that's okay with God. But do you know what? in the end through the Old Testament, God consistently said to his people, but I don't desire the outward things. What I really want is your heart. You know, if my husband did all of the things that he does for me out of a sense of duty, it would be such a sad situation to be in. But thank God I know that he does the things that he does for me out of a place of love. And God doesn't desire that you and I do anything out of a sense of duty for him. 
but rather he would want our insides to be, to be white, to be clean, which is what he says in Matthew. He says it's like having a dish. And you only bother with the outside bit of it. You only do the outside things. You come to church and you sit there and you lift your hands and you sing the songs. And some of you sing really loud and some of you sing really quiet. And um, some of you pray out loud. What he really wants is our hearts and all that can come later. Sometimes that can become our religion. I had a friend who only a few years ago went off, he was a younger friend, went off to Bible college in another country and um, spent three years there um, in a Western country in a very famous place and spent three years there and came home and he came back to my church, which was up in North Yorkshire at the time, came back there and, and I just, we were, me and my husband were so excited and we just thought, oh, it's so great. You know, he must have learned so much and he could help us out and it'll be great. And he came back and within about two or three weeks, he said, I can't come to this church anymore because it doesn't do things the same way that I've learned to do them in the place that I've been in. And he desperately struggled to live out a faith that was anything other than the structures that the church had put around him for those three years. And my heart was so saddened by it because I just thought, you know, your faith is built upon those structures that have been put in place rather than a living relationship with Jesus. Me and my husband used to go door knocking as part of our Easter outreach. And we'd give out Easter eggs and Easter cards for absolutely free. We'd gone round the estate that we worked on and we knocked on all the doors and we'd be like, oh, happy Easter, it's so good to see. And people were actually really, really friendly to us. But one time we had this woman who said to me, "Um, I'm really sorry, I can't accept your card and your Easter eggs because I'm a Methodist (laughs) and you're a Baptist. So no, thank you very much. And she was really genuine. She really thought, well, hang on, I'm a Methodist and this is a Baptist thing and therefore we can't partake. And denomination, you know, whether we're from this denomination or that or the other can become a religion to us. And it all becomes about the denomination rather than about a living relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, we move. We can't find another Baptist church. What are we going to do? Oh no, we can't possibly have a faith without finding a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a free church or an Anglican church. If there's one that doesn't so it fits us round and about what's going to happen. Our faith is going to fall to pieces because of the denominations. What about the way that we do things? I've known churches, people that have left churches because an organ has been moved from a certain spot that it has rested in for a hundred years. And that organ has become more important to that person than a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Or one time in my old church, someone came in, um, a visitor actually, and sat down in a seat. And one of the um, one of the older ladies, who was really lovely actually, but one of the older ladies came and said, "Excuse me, do you realise that's my seat? And I've sat in that seat for the last twenty years. Um, could you move along, please?" To a visitor who didn't didn't know Christ. Sometimes the way we do things as a church becomes our religion. This building 
could very well easily become a religion, couldn't it? Well, we can't possibly. Gold Hill won't be Gold Hill if it doesn't meet in the Gold Hill Baptist Church, which is met in that location for a thousand years. And if we move, it won't be the same and it won't be right. You know, and if we have those sorts of thoughts in our hearts and our minds, and it has anything to do with anything other than knowing the direction and the will and the call and the understanding of what God has said, then that has become our religion. You know, this building, it's just a building. (laughs) I can see some faces. (laughs) It's just a building. The way we set the seats out, does it really matter? Where the organ sits. The passage that we read as I come to a close this evening in that chapter, um, Jesus says to the um, disciples to the, uh, about the Pharisees that they've been shutting people out of the kingdom of God because of all of the little rules and the petty. And I know people who have been um, put off coming to church because they've worn a hat in church. I've known people who have turned around and said to young, young people, you know, I just sometimes thank God that we have teenagers. Certainly in my old church, I just thanked God that the teenagers were actually there. <laughs> and sometimes they would sit, and we had chairs like yours actually, and put, put their feet up on the back of the chairs and get comfy. And there was one particular guy who regularly used to turn around and bowl them out and shout at them and tell them really quite nastily actually how disgusted he was that they had their feet up on the chairs without ever once asking those young people how they were what was going on in their lives. They were thankful that they were here. We thank God for you. Nothing. It was all about the chairs. Now, I'm not for disrespecting furniture, so don't get me wrong. However, there are ways and means of doing things. And if those chairs are so important that we're saying to people, we don't want you to come in. Our old cleaner up in North Yorkshire, I used to have a joke with him. Um, He was a lovely guy and um, he did take this as humorous. Um, but he used to come in sometimes and say, the church is a mess. It's terrible. There's papers being left on the floor and there's been this and that and the other and the church is just a mess. The carpet's dirty. So I used to say to him, I'll tell you what, let's not have anybody in the church. We'll stop everybody from coming and then it'll be perfectly clean. And he used to laugh about it, but we sometimes gain these attitudes that say it's all about the fixtures and fittings. It's all about the building. It's all about this, that and the other. It's all about the colours. We've had arguments in churches before over the colours of the building. Does it really, really matter? What matters is that we have a living relationship with Jesus Christ, that we meet together to worship him. You know, we read this morning, um, just as I do close now, we read this morning Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And it says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm glad it doesn't end there. 
Because it says, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And this passage here, you know, this passage speaks of a God who came down and sent his son to die on a cross and to be risen to life three days later so that you and I not can have a religion, not so that we can worry about chairs and buildings and paintings and fixtures and fittings or or weary and feel condemned, but so that you and I can be set free and have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, this Bible teaches us It teaches us the great story of God. It teaches us the great story of salvation. But do you know what? When you and I mess up, when you and I get it wrong, when you and I perhaps are tired one night and we don't come out to serve the tea and coffee or whatever it is, then do you know what? You are loved by God. The day that you don't read your Bible... Even though I'm advocating reading the Bible because it's God's great story of salvation and I love the word of God. But the day you don't read it, you are loved. The day that you have a hard time and you don't come to church, you are loved by God. The day that you sin and do something you know the Bible really teaches you you shouldn't, you are loved by God. See, Christ didn't come so that he could love us when we behaved ourselves. Christ came so that every single day of the whole of the rest of our lives, he could love us and have a relationship with us. And yet what we do is we live under a place that says, unless I do this, unless I do that, then I'm not good enough. And yet God looks and says, yeah. You're not good enough, but I sent Jesus and he is good enough. And because of him, because of all that he's done, because of everything of who he is, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are chosen, you are accepted, you are brought into my family. And folks, I want to encourage us because it's easy to do. Let's never turn this living faith that Christ came for into a religion. Let's never make it about rules. Because the word says that whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And so my prayer this evening is that you and I would live in a place where we know that should we fail one of these commandments, we're still loved and accepted by almighty God in heaven. That should we get cross and shout in a very unloving way out of our car window at someone who is in front of you and not driving as well as they should, which of course I never do, then we're still loved by God and we don't need to condemn ourselves because he does not condemn us. He loves us.
wonder, would you pray with me? Lord, you taught your disciples not to live like the Pharisees, not to create rule upon rule upon rule, which brings condemnation on people, that you don't want a manual and for us to follow so many rules, but rather you want a living relationship with us. You want us to do the things that we do out of a love for you, not a sense of duty. Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, because there are so many things that can become religious crutches to us, that can become the foundation of our faith instead of Christ and grace and love and mercy. Lord, there are so many things that we can turn into an important issue. And Lord, I pray, give us eyes to see because we don't always see. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who live and walk and breathe and journey together in freedom. Lord, I pray for anyone here this evening who perhaps don't feel like they're a good enough Christian. Perhaps look around and think there are people here better than me because they act better. Lord God, I pray that each one of us would walk away from here tonight knowing that we are loved. And that we will always be loved by you. Not because of anything we will ever do. But because of who you are. And nothing can shake that. Nothing can change that. Lord, help us to love you and know you and live in relationship with you and serve you. In such a way that our relationship is kept fresh. And Lord, just be with each one of us, I pray, as we allow you to search our hearts and perhaps over this next week as we consider and look at our own lives. Lord, let nothing come in the way of a living relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confronting the Idols of Our Age. I pray that it's a blessing to you and that it helps you think through how you can live faithfully for Jesus in our day and in our generation. For more information about my ministry, go to malcolmduncan.org, my blog, or my website, malcolmduncan.co.uk. And you can join me um, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Rev Malcolm Duncan or at the church that I lead, facebook.com forward slash Dundonald Elam Church. You can also check out our website at dundonaldelam.church. God bless you and I look forward to you joining me next time.